So last time we met, Stan walked you through uh, Genesis 13. And there, we, there was a quarrel that was going on between Lot and Abram. And that, what happens at the end there, is very important to understanding what's going on here. Okay? At the very end, Lot and Abram, they divide up the land. Okay? They divide up the land, and Lot moves his tent closer to Sodom. Okay? So he gets near Sodom. And to some extent there, the way that the sentence is structured, it's not that he is in Sodom. But we'll see there is a much different position for Lot as we look in 14.12 that Lot was dwelling in Sodom. And so before we get there, we kind of see this war that's breaking out between these four kings and five kings, and they're fighting. There's great turmoil. There's a lot of confusion uh, that's going on, and basically those, uh, the, the kings um, that were over these weaker countries, these weaker uh, forces, these five, um, they go out against them because the, the, the smaller, the weaker kingdoms are revolting, and so they're going to put them down, and this is actually probably one of the first wars that we get an account of in the world. That the Bible lays out here that there is a war going on. And so with Lot, we see that when he was living near Sodom, and now that he was dwelling in Sodom, he was taken in the midst of that war. In the midst of that war. And so there, what we want to look at, and what we kind of want to focus on, is what is the writer there in Genesis, what is Moses trying to tell us here about uh, what happened with Lot? Lot got close to Sodom and got pulled in. He got pulled in. And when you're sitting on the margins of sin in your life, sooner or later you're going to go all the way in. You're going to go all the way in because that's how powerful sin is. Sin will deceive you. Sin will work in you a disobedience to God. It'll start to blur your vision that you can't really see what's right that pleases God. And so you're prone to move closer and closer. And so we want to talk about that a little bit. We want to talk about what is the consequence of sin. What do you see there that the writer tells us that when Lot was taken, what was the consequence of sin? What are the two things that you see there that Lot had faced the consequence because now he was living in Sodom? He was living in a place that rebelled against God, who despised God, wanted nothing to do with God, but yet Lot was there. We look there. And you can answer if you have the answer, but if not, I'll, I'll tell you. Okay, so they also, in verse 12, it says, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. What were the two things that Lot lost by dwelling in Sodom? His freedom, right? What else? His stuff, his possessions. Is there anything else that we can think of that Lot lost? 
by being by dwelling in Sodom, not simply just living near Sodom, but dwelling in Sodom. He said, "What closeness to God?" Okay, his family. Yeah, we see that later that that gets restored to him. Right. So basically, Lot lost his life. Right. He lost his freedom, his captivity. He lost himself because now he was in captive and bondage to another. Right. This these forces that came in. Because of where he was positioned, he got entangled with all the affairs that were going on in the world. He got swept up in that. It's almost kind of like a, uh, um, just a byproduct, the way that this is positioned in the midst of the war. And so it almost seems like, is this just collateral damage? That Lot gets picked up in the midst of this war, but where he was positioned, where he was living, his closeness to sin brought about the consequence where he lost his life and he lost his possessions. He was carried off into captivity and bondage. Well, that's something that's very instructive for us, is that if we simply live life on the margins, testing the parameters of sin, and we bring our tent near, we come and we start to get comfortable. We start to kind of settle in close to a place that is in rebellion to God, sooner or later we're going to find ourselves dwelling in that place where now we're resting in the comfortability of sin itself and rebelling against God. And when the consequences, the affairs that will take place in the world kind of blow up, then the consequences, we may be swept away in it. And that's kind of the picture of what happens with us and sin. It's what happened with what took place in the garden. Man said, I don't want to be near God anymore. Okay, I want to become God. I want to get nearer to the place that I want to be. And in doing that, they got further and further away from God. They fell from the grace and lost the communion that they had with their Creator. And so if you entertain sin, if you, you just take sin as it's just missing the mark, it's just oh, I'm living in an error, it's, just a, it's a small activity of sin, it's not. It's almost as if you're taking sin and you're lying down with it. You're getting intimate with it. And you're laying down in relationship with it where you're tying yourself to another in rebellion to God. And so we got to think about in our lives, what is it? What is it where we're just living on the margins? That we're not, putting, we're not putting our foot fully in, so we're like, we're comfortable. We're safe. But all of a sudden, we're going to get swept up in that moment. In that moment. Are we entertaining discontent before God? I know that's one that I wrestle with. That, Lord, why won't you show justice in this world? Why don't you show justice more in this world as if it's my right to call God out? I'm living on the margins. I'm living on the margins of putting my place in the place I don't belong. And that's in God's place. And so I want you to really think about what is it in your own life where you're living on the outside, you're near, 
sinful behavior, but it's going to bring you in. And the consequences are going to be great. The consequences are going to be great. Because what the consequences will be is you will lose yourself. You will lose the freedom. You will lose the freedom if you sit there and you entertain and you practice sin. You find a habitual living of sin in disobedience to God. You're going to live the precious experience of salvation in Christ Jesus. Because sin, it will be almost like sin has a hold of you again. And what it wants to do is take the very commands of God, the very power of God, and kill you and put you under its power and its dominion once again. It wants to deceive you and lull you to sleep, to say, you're safe, you're good. We made a deal. Lot and Abram made a deal that we were going to divide up the land. So I just abided by our agreement, but yet now Lot was far in. And because he got swept up, he has no power against the, rule, the wars that are going on in the world. That he's taken a prisoner and he loses everything. He loses everything. So keep, there we see first Lot. Where is his position? What is the consequences of living in sin? Then we come to verse 13 through 16. And here in your... Worship folder, you see the question, what kind of rescuer, okay, what kind of rescuer do we need? What kind of rescuer do we need? It says here that then one who had escaped and told Abraham, Abram the Hebrew who is living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Anir, that his kinsmen have been taken captive, have been taken captive. And what does Abram do? He immediately gathers his forces. The 318 men are going to rise up against this great nation and go and rescue his brother, his kinsman, the one in which he just had a little quarrel with, so much the quarrel that separated them, that Abram had to go his way and Lot had to go his way. And Abram just doesn't respond, well, too bad. Let him face the consequence of that sin. He immediately gets up and gathers his army. Gathers his army. And so when I see that, and when I hear that, I think that rescuer is pretty darn gracious. You see the power of grace? Lot didn't deserve Abram's help. He put himself in that place. He got himself in his own mess. But yet, here's Abram. Here's Abram immediately calling together his forces that he can go and rescue Lot. So there we see that he, he divides his forces. He knows he's outnumbered. And so he establishes strength in the way of wisdom. He approaches by night. He divides his forces. And he ultimately rescues Lot. So when you see that, what kind of rescuer do we need? Throw, me some, throw out some characteristics of what you see in Abram, of the type of rescuer he is. Fearless. Fearless. Absolutely. What else? Somebody 
He's caring, yes. He's passionate, okay. What else? Wise, Wise absolutely. That's right. He used his wealth, right? He was gathering his wealth and using his wealth, putting it on the line, if you will. Putting it on the line, and he could have lost it if he was defeated. Strong. Strong, absolutely. It's a very sovereign rescue. He doesn't seem to ask a lot of questions because he had seen a lot of Yeah, I agree. I think as I look at this, it's like, isn't it providential that where Abram was positioned and word came to him, okay, it wasn't like Abram was looking for it. God provided the way to bring the notice, to bring that notification to Abram that Lot's been taken in the midst of the war. He's courageous. He's zealous because he's not going to stop until he accomplishes what he's after. I also think he's missional. He's on a mission. He's on a mission to go and deliver his brother. He shows here self-sacrifice. He lays it all on the line for going to rescue Lot. He's determined. Right? I don't think there's anything here that shows that he doubted it at all. He was determined that he knew what he needed to do, and he was going to go and do it. He was strategic. He was prepared. But we also see something about strength here. What do we see about the strength that Abram is going to manifest and show by how he rescues Lot? Where does strength come from? For, for what? Wisdom. Wisdom. Okay. Absolutely. Where, where else? He's relying on the Lord. Where else? His faith, good. Okay, I think also that we see that strength's not necessarily in numbers, okay? But we see the strength of what Abraham's doing in his execution and determination, okay? That there, Abram is executing his plan perfectly, and he's determined to win. He's determined to conquer. He's determined to rescue Lot. And so the type of rescuer we need, we need one who's victorious. If he's going to lose the fight, it's not much of a rescue, right? We need one who's victorious. In fact, one uh, writer pointed out that there's nothing here that's recorded about a loss of life on Abram's side. He didn't lose anything. He won in a perfect way. And so at the very end, what takes place in verse 16? What did Abram do? He brought back Lot and all the possessions and brought back his kinsmen's Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Here Lot was fully restored. That's what a rescuer does. Doesn't just kind of get off get off by the skin of their teeth, but it fully restores the one who's being rescued. Being rescued. 
And that verse that we read in Colossians earlier, I think it says it all for us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so I ask you, what kind of rescuer do we have? What kind of rescuer do we have in Jesus Christ? One who's gracious. One who has worked according to his providence. One who executes his decree perfectly. One who loses nothing. One who fully restores his people by the demonstration of his grace and his wisdom. What the world calls his foolishness, the preaching of the cross, God calls his wisdom. It couldn't have looked pretty wise here to raise up an army of 318 people to come against a nation that was massive. The odds were against him, but there was the wisdom of Abraham because of his execution, his determination. We see that in the cross, don't we? That the very thing that sin, the devil, the world, the flesh wants is to put us to death, to separate us from the life of God. But that's the very thing, the very thing that God uses to deliver us, to rescue us, to say, sin, you no longer have power over my kinsmen. I'm here to redeem. The Lord Jesus comes and he lays down his life with great cost to him, great cost to him, that he can buy us back, that he can bring us and not just get by and bring us into a, a better place just in a little way than where we were to begin with. But he goes and he brings us into the riches of his kingdom. And he lavishes upon us his love. He pours out the wealth of his love and his grace. We don't deserve to be rescued. Just like Lot. He didn't deserve to be rescued. We have lived our life on the margins and finally have found ourselves lying down with sin under the servitude of sin. It's got us a hold. Think about Egypt, what took place with God's people, the Israelites. They were in bondage and captivity. They needed to be rescued. They needed to be delivered. And so God executes a perfect plan and brings about the rescuing of his people. And there we should see the picture of us in the bondage and the captivity of sin that Christ comes and executes the perfect eternal plan worked out between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost of how his people will be rescued from a kingdom of darkness, from another kingdom, and brought into the kingdom of light and to his grace. And to his grace. And so do we see the power and the strength of God in the death and the resurrection of Christ? We should. We should. Because that's how God rescues us. That's how God delivers us. The last place that we'll look at here in this, the last verses, 
we ask the question about Abram being the blessed redeemer, what does victory look like? Before we start to kind of unpack that and kind of listen to what the text says victory ought to look like, what do you think victory looks like? What do we see in the world where people who are victorious, what kind of characteristics do they show? No idea, okay. Yeah, Vic. Yeah, what, when you think of being victorious in this world, what do you see people show? Okay. What else? Satan. Satan, is that what you said? Safe. Safe, yes, safety. Okay. Excitement, I'm sorry. Yes, excitement. They're loud and boisterous about their victory, right? A lot of people victorious. I mean, there's victories in many different ways. I mean, we see sports athletes all the time. When they overcome and score, how do they celebrate their victory of scoring? Yeah, they're jumping up and down, making it known I'm victorious, showing, look at my accomplishment, what I've done, right? And, and wars, that's usually how countries are. They make a big show and a spectacle of their victory, they, they boast about how powerful they are. They boast about what they have done. They boast about um, how they had the upper hand and were stronger than the enemy in which they overcame. But here, we don't see that picture. We don't see that picture from Abram and what does victory look like. The first thing that we see here after his return from the defeat, and there he meets the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom comes out to meet him at the valley of Sheba. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. So he's being met by the kings in the area, and more specifically and especially, he's being met by a priestly king. Melchizedek, this mysterious figure in which our Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrews is referred to. To say, do you want to know the order of priesthood that Jesus comes from? He comes from the order of priesthood of Melchizedek. He doesn't get his position as the great high priest and the priest because of who his parents are, of his lineage, of who he's born to. Nowhere here do we see a record of Melchizedek, of his birth, of who his parents are, what his lineage is. He just appears. He appears on the scene here at the moment of redemption, at the moment of great victory that's taking place. And Melchizedek comes out, and he's the king of Salem, and he brings out bread and wine. Bread and wine. There I couldn't, happen, couldn't just pass over that as I was studying it. But what is the nutrients and the refreshments that God gives his church now? The bread and wine. I'm not 
necessarily saying let's draw a direct line there, but yet see what's being said there for us. That when we come out of the battle, that we come through the great moment of being rescued, we're to receive the refreshments of God. And he does. He strengthens us. He meets us. He greets us. But here, Melchizedek, he was a priest of the Most High God, God Most High. And he blessed them and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. What does victory look like? It's to receive the approval of God. It's to have favor bestowed upon you. Melchizedek was the priest of God Most High. He was serving the Creator. He was serving the only God, our God. And now that Abram comes back, he's met by Melchizedek. And there he receives the approval of God by being blessed by him. And who is he being blessed by? He's being blessed by the possessor of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. It goes similar to what we uh, saw in our text this morning. Is that if Jesus has power over life and death, he is the beginning. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the ending. He controls it all. He has possession of it all. So any victories that we have belong to him. We'll see later on in Revelation at some point what takes place that when the saints that have the crowns upon their head come before the Lord Jesus Christ's throne, they throw them down. That victory, that glory, that honor doesn't belong to them. It belongs to Christ. The victory that Abram had rescued Lot doesn't belong to Abram. It belongs to God. But there Abram receives the benefit of that victory, the blessing and the favor of God. That brings about a humility and humbleness that we don't see a lot in those who are victorious in this world. I don't see it in myself. How many times have you played a board game and you beat the other part, beat a family member and you want to make it? No, I beat you. Yeah, you know, it's not very kind of us. But here we don't see that with Abram. He could have said, yes, I went and I rescued someone with just 318 men. I overtook the army that took out the five nations. <laughs> the five nations could not defeat this one king, but Abram could with 318 men. But he doesn't boast about that victory. That means, look at me. Look what I have done. But he comes back from the battle, and there he receives the blessing of God, the favor. Because victory belongs to God. And that, we see, was being recognized by Melchizedek and Abram. They recognized that the victory belongs to you, Lord. But now we're going to see, how did the king of Sodom view the victory? 
How did King of Sodom view what Abram has done? Because there what we're seeing here is that with Abram and Melchizedek, the spoils belong to God. All our efforts, all of our works, all of our labors is to bring God glory. They have been ordained. Okay, They've been ordained by God to glorify him. So our first question of our catechism says, right? what is our chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him. Enjoy him. Where if we're getting the glory and we're getting the crown, we're not going to enjoy God. We're going to miss it. We're going to think that we're enjoying God. Go back to creation. Go back to the garden of what takes place. There that when you're trying to get the knowledge of good and evil so you can be like God, you lost it all. And so if we retain the victory and the glory for ourselves apart from the work of God in Christ Jesus... It's no victory at all. If we retain the spoils for our own benefit to show how powerful we are, to uh, increase our riches, and we don't give God the glory, it's not worth it. It's not worth it because we've lost it all. We've lost it all. And so with Abram, for him, what does victory look like? There's no self-enrichment. He doesn't keep his spoils. The king of Sodom tells them, well, divide up it in this way. You keep this and you give me that. Well, who's the king of Sodom? Why does he have a right to come to Abram to say, basically what you did that I couldn't do, I need to get the spoils from it. As if he's the one that grants power to Abram. As if he's the one who gives uh, glory to and bestows glory to Abram. And so, what does victory look like? It's someone that's not proud. Nowhere here do you see anywhere where Abram is lifting up his name. He's not even going there and talking to Lot and saying, look what I've done for you, now this is what you're going to do for me. Because there what Abram worked out where he worked from was from his person, from his being, from his duty of being the kinsman, the one closest, the one nearest to the one that was in trouble, that needed to be rescued. He was moved and provoked by his own love. Isn't that the work of our Savior? He does this for his own glory, to lift up his name throughout the world. He's moved by the love for his people, that he enters into the world, that he can save his people from their sins. That's why he's called Jesus, the Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. And to have victory is not to be unmindful of whose victory it truly is. It truly is. Sometimes when things go right for us and we know there was like a loophole, right? Or we know that there was a bad call on the play and it gave us the victory. And we claim it anyways. We don't see, the, oh, no, 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 I don't want that victory. I don't want that victory. 
It's not that Abram is saying, well, God, I know this by your providence, by your sovereign will, that you have purposed for this victory, but look what I've done. Look what I've gone and done. I was courageous. I overcame uh, insurmountable odds. But Abraham, Abram is not doing that. Abram is not doing that. But the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. I have committed myself to God. I've committed myself to God. I have made a promise to God. And he's not going to go back on that. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Goes back to that perspective. Do we know who our master is? Do we know who the God of creation is? Because if we truly have a mind of that, we haven't have a spiritual mindedness, heavenly mindedness, that we serve the risen Lord, the first and the last, the one who was dead that is now alive forevermore. How committed, who else could we serve? Why would we want to serve another? Why would we want to make a bargain or a deal with anyone else in this world that offers us riches? That's what Satan tried to do with Jesus. I give you the world. If you'll just bow down and worship me. That's going on in the Christian's life every single day. Is that if you will just stop having faith in Christ Jesus, this is the wealth you'll have. This is the relationships that you will have. This is the peace that you'll have. You won't have turmoil. You won't have trouble in this world. It's promising a, a check that it cannot cash. It is promising you something that is just vain, empty, the wind. On the surface, it seems like it has value, but it doesn't have any value. And it will look like if it has value to you if you do not value your Lord and Savior. If we do not value the Lord and Savior, then we're going to value everything else in this world. And there we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to leave it all behind? Are we willing to lose it all that we may gain everything in Christ Jesus? And so here the king of Sodom is asking Abram, to do what Abram knows is not right or pleasing to God. And so Abram leans upon his faith, leans upon his relationship, his covenant relationship with his God. That gives him strength. That gives him the power to resist what's taking place here. And he says that what he's told, what he has said to God... The vow that he's made with God is that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Abram is not ignorant of who it is that's speaking to him. Abram is not ignorant 
of what the intentions of the king are. And neither should we be ignorant when these offers are made to us. When these offers are made to us to turn away from our God, claim the victory for ourselves, claim our own power and claim our own authority. The one who's making that offer is offering separation from God. But thanks be to God, in Christ Jesus, there is nothing that can separate us. Nothing whatsoever, neither death nor life, not even ourselves. We're the greatest offender of that, that we seek to divide ourselves from God against our own welfare. And there, if we are not in the Word daily, if we are not in prayer and conversation with God daily, then what voices are we listening to? Where is it that we, what is it that we're bowing down to? I know for me, I have to pay attention. As look how many times I'm looking at my phone like this. And what voices am I listening to? What is it that I'm reading? And so all of that, that draws away our attention from our relationship with God. Lean upon your faith. Trust your faith. Trust the covenant promises that God has made with you. And I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten. And the share of the men who went with me, let Anir, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. You see equity there. Because the Redeemer, the act of redemption, the redemption is equitable. It's in the perfect balance of God's love, grace, and mercy. And Abram is demonstrating that. He gives an offering to God. He gives a tenth to Melchizedek in order to show that, Lord, what I have belongs to you. The same reason why we give to our God. But then we see that the act of the rescue of redemption is done in an equitable way. Done in an equitable way. Not to destroy, but to restore, to deliver, to rescue. To bring, I mean, when Jesus came into the world, he said, I don't have to come in to condemn the world. The world's condemned already. But what he does is he comes to bring salvation. Bring salvation. That's the reality. That all the world is in, that if God does not intervene... If God does not send a Redeemer, just like what was said in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the promise of one who will come and destroy Satan in the midst of the fall. That there is the power of God's salvation. There is the victory that we look for. That's the victory that we hope. And so the question that I leave you tonight with is how should we live as Christians who are victorious in Christ Jesus? Should we exert our own power? Should we go around claiming and declaring things as if we have the power to claim creation for ourselves? Or do we honor and lift up the name of God, the name of Christ Jesus, who is the King of kings, which when we stand before his presence one day with the crowns of glory upon our head, we will throw them down before his throne because he deserves all glory and praise.